As we look at the last of our uh, six world changers, the references to John Mark are very few. They're only about 12 verses, but he is the comeback kid. Here's a guy who blew it early in his life, but comes back to be very effective for the gospel and for Christ uh, in the latter days of his life. So let, let's just see who, who needs to hear this message. This All right, if you've ever blown it, raise your hand. All right, pretty much everybody needs to pay attention today. I mean, if you've ever blown it, here's what the devil does to you. Big or small, it doesn't matter. He begins to accuse. He begins to lay guilt on you. He begins to tell you that God won't forgive you. You can't come back from that. You're not good enough. God won't show you any favor. You're just off the mark, and you're never going to make it. And if you let him, he will beat you to death with that attitude. That he, he will make you think that your failure is final. And that is a denial of the gospel of grace. And John Mark is a wonderful example. Here's a man who is much like Simon Peter, who had great moments, but then blew it, but then came back to be effective. There, there are only about a dozen verses about John Mark in the scripture, but they are significant because they give us his timeline. This is a story that has drama in it, conflict, failure, and restoration. And so it's important for us to learn from this young man who was chosen to be on the first missionary journey. He was chosen to be a servant. That word means an under rower, one who is underneath but in the trenches doing a job. Here's, here's a guy who's not been asked to come on a missionary journey to preach to great crowds or to be in charge of follow-up. Here's a guy who, if you can get the picture of this man, he's being tested in this first missionary journey, to test it to see if he's got the stuff that it will take to serve the Lord. Here's a guy who is being equipped by some of the greatest leaders in the church. So he's not famous and he's not going to be out front. He was, if you will, an intern or a personal assistant. He's the one to make sure that the boat is there for them to get across the ocean. He's the one to make sure that the food is acquired, that the meals are prepared. He's taking care of the logistics of what's going on in, in the life of Paul and Barnabas. And so here's a guy who's very important, but potential and performance don't always match. I mean, a person can have great potential, but not reach that potential with their performance. And so some folks don't make it, although all could. Some people don't make it because they can't work under authority. Some people don't make it because they don't have the tenacity and the fortitude for the kind of work that they need to do. They, they have a, a I'll just quit mentality, and they give up. And you see a little bit of that in John Mark in the early part of his life. Some, some people can't make it because they're trying to put a square peg in a round hole. One of the things about a call to ministry is, is that the church, I believe, the church recognizes that call sometimes even before the person does. They see the gifts, the talents, the abilities, 
And Barnabas and Paul saw something in John Mark that said, let's take this guy out for a trial run. Let's see if he can make it. And so here's the moment uh, of testing. Acts chapter 12 and verse 25, and then we're going to look at Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 12 and verse 25. Now, there's a lot of background story here that we won't take time with today in this message, but I want you to see the setting of this testing that he's going to go through. Acts 12 and verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John who was also called Mark, Acts chapter 13 and verse 2. The Holy Spirit said, set aside for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And then look at the last part of verse 5. They also had John as their helper. Now the first thing I want you to see is the importance of influence, the importance of influence. It's important who you hang around with. Corinthians says bad company corrupts good morals. It's important who you spend time with. It's important who speaks into your life. Uh, That's why from the time I was in youth ministry, I, I tell parents, you need five people on your child's board of directors. You need the two of you as parents. You need a coach or a teacher. You need a Sunday school teacher or a youth minister or children's minister. There need to be five people that have major influence to be able to speak into the life of your child because that helps you as a parent. It helps you to raise them. It helps them to know that they can go and talk to somebody else. So there's an importance of influence here. Now, John is Mark's Jewish name. Mark is his Greek name. He's a Hellenistic Jew. His mother, Mary, owned a house. We know that from other passages of Scripture. Now, here's what speculation among scholars dating back hundreds and hundreds of years says about his mother, Mary. Mary was wealthy, much like Barnabas was wealthy. There's an uh, implication that she didn't sell her house and give it all like Barnabas did in the book of Acts, but she made her house available to the church for ministry. So here's the speculation. Number one, that the Last Supper, the meeting of Jesus with his disciples, where he gives us his last words in John 14 through 17, that it happened in an upper room in her house. Number two, that they went back to that upper room when the 120 gathered to pray before the Holy Spirit fell, that they went to the upper room in Mary's house and had that prayer meeting. The third is in Acts chapter 12, when the church is praying for Peter to be released from prison, He goes when he's released from prison by the angel, and guess where he goes? He goes to the house of Mary where they are praying. So here's a young man who has been raised in a prayer environment. He's been raised in a house where the leaders of this early church have come and have gathered and have met. He's been raised by a godly mom. We don't know anything about his dad. He could have already been dead by this time. He's been raised by a godly mom who shows him the importance of prayer, who brings people into her home to pray. And he's 
on the fringes. He's watching this. He's, he's hearing this. He's seeing this. And, and some would also suggest that John Mark is the young man, which this is only recorded in his gospel, that John Mark is the young man who, when all the disciples ran, he stayed and followed Jesus. And when they tried to catch him, they took his clothes off of him and he ran away. And the reason there's speculation that Mark is that young man is he would never have been self-serving enough to say, I was the guy who followed Jesus when the disciples ran away. But he's the only one that mentions it. He's the only one that mentions it. So either he was the young man or Simon Peter, having followed from a distance, knew it was him because Simon Peter is the one who told Mark the story of the Gospels and wrote it down for Simon Peter. So... You have to think this mother's home is a place of influence, that Simon Peter was a man who had a great impact on his life. In fact, in 1 Peter, Simon Peter says he's my son. He just was like a son to him. Uh, I have young men that have come out of the ministry in this church and outside of this church that are like sons to me because I've seen what God has done in their life and God has raised them up either when I was in youth ministry or as a pastor and God's done something in their life significant. And I would say of them very affectionately, they're like my son. That's what Simon Peter says. Simon Peter says, this, this guy's like his son. He's surrounded by Christian leaders. Now, in the days before hotels... <laughs> You know, you got your nice hotels, and then you got your Motel 4, and we'll get the other two back to you later. Uh, you rent the roaches by the hour in those places. <laughs> but in the days before hotels, a lot of people used to have traveling preachers in their homes. Uh, if you go in my office, you will see a window frame uh, that is out of the front window of Vance Havner's house which is being restored by a church in North Carolina. But you will find the bottom half of that window, entire window frame in there. And I have pictures of Vance Havner inside that window. That window came out of what was known in the Havner home as the prophet's room. It was the only bedroom that had a fireplace in it. It was the largest bedroom. It was the parents' bedroom, but when a traveling preacher came, and they didn't have a full-time preacher in those days in Hickory, North Carolina, and so when a traveling preacher came, he would spend the night at the Havner home on Saturday night and Sunday night before he was off to his next place. And Vance Havner said, it was the one time that my parents let me stay up late on Saturday night before church and on Sunday night after church to hear these preachers tell the stories about the people that had been saved, the lives that had been changed, the, the churches that they had preached in, the revival meetings they had done. And it, and it wore off on this young preacher who became a preacher himself at the age of 12, preached his first sermon when he was 12 years old had to stand on a stool because he was so short he couldn't see over the pulpit. So he had to stand on the stool with his father on one side of him and a deacon on the other side of him to preach his first sermon. He was influenced by men who came inside his home. Billy Graham tells the story of his growing up on a dairy farm and to try to influence her children for the gospel. When the traveling evangelist would come in, that evangelist would stay in the Graham home on their farm so that there would be positive influence in the lives of those children. Let me ask you something. 
Who are you allowing your children to rub shoulders with? It's important who they sit at the table with. You know, what we do today now, because we're so sophisticated, the minute we get through eating, we send the kids off with a video game and we send them off to watch TV so we can have an adult conversation. Your adult conversations sometimes need to include your children and your teenagers because they need to hear of great faith. They need to hear what God is doing. And if the conversation is not on that level, you might want to ask, why is it not on that level? You know, one of the things we did when our girls were growing up, we would take them to eat with us when we would go out with Ron and Kay Dunn and when we would go out with other people. We would take them to those meals with us because we wanted them to see, first of all, we weren't the only people singing this song about faithfulness and walking with God. We wanted them to rub shoulders. We wanted them to to know the hearts of some of these great men and women. And so even when they were little, we would take them with us to these meals. We wouldn't get a babysitter. We would take them with us because we wanted to pour into them with the lives of others. There's the person of influence. There's the, the importance of influence. Secondly, the danger of secondhand experience. The danger of secondhand experience. Now, you can hear all of that. In fact, you can grow up in a church like Sherwood where it's warm and where it's sweet and where the presence of God is and the Word of God is taught and where we've got a great preschool and children's and youth ministry. You can grow up in that and still live a secondhand Christian life. You can hear it. You can know it. You can check the box. You can know all the answers. You can anticipate the questions but not have a firsthand experience with God. I mean, can you imagine John Mark? I mean, here is the guy. I mean, this, you know, we, our point of reference is usually Billy Graham. Here's the guy. This is the Apostle Paul. I mean, he is the, he is the star of the church. He is the celebrity figure in the church. And all of a sudden, his cousin Barnabas says, hey, you want to go on a trip with us? And he's thinking, man, this is cool. I cannot wait to tweet, text, Facebook, and Skype with my friends while we're on this trip. I'm going to turn it around. I'm going to turn my Mac around, and I'm going to show my friends. Look at where we are. You've never even been two blocks from home. Look at where I am. I mean, he's so excited, but he's excited about someone else's experience. You see the danger? That's what happens to us when we watch football games. We get excited when somebody wins, and we act like we won. And we we had got a bit of dirt on us, no bruises, and we're not going to have to sit in an ice tub for the next 24 hours getting over the beating that we just took. We won. You know, we wear the colors. We put the flag on our car. We put the decal on. We put the bumper sticker on because we won. That's the danger of a secondhand experience. We can think we won when actually we did nothing to contribute to it. But here's John Mark. He's having this experience, but Cyprus is now a long way from home. I mean, it is a long way from home. There are no fast trains, planes, or automobiles. He's a long way from home. It's getting hard. He's surrounded by pagan worship. Now, remember, this is a guy that's grown up in a pretty protected environment. He's never been around that many Gentiles in his life, much less pagans. Now he's around all this paganism and all this false worship, 
And some people see Paul's refusal to take him on the second journey as thinking that John Mark didn't have what it took to have a passion for evangelism and for missions. That Paul looked at him and said, this guy doesn't care about a lost world. I'm not going to take him with me. That's speculation. But to top it all off, Paul and Barnabas are going to go further. I mean, John Mark's probably thinking, hey, a couple of weeks, church mission trip, that's pretty cool. But they're going to go further, and so he bails out. Maybe he begins to justify him to himself. You know, I've been here long enough. I didn't sign up for the full tour of duty. There's no contract that I'm obligated to. Maybe he says, you know, I'll go back and help Simon Peter at home. I, I'm hearing some good things there. Maybe my mom needs me. Maybe he misses his mom's mashed potatoes and turnip greens and sweet potatoes and apple pie. Maybe he's just missing a good home-cooked meal. It could be. You have to use your sanctified imagination. But it could be that John Mark had a little bit of a problem because in Acts chapter 13, Luke quits writing about Barnabas and Paul, and he flips it and starts saying Paul and Barnabas. It could be that as a young man, he wasn't mature enough to handle the fact that his cousin Barnabas was not going to be the lead dog anymore. And so out of respect for his cousin and not real sure about why this is being told this way, he just says, you know what, if my, if my cousin Barnabas is not going to be in charge, Paul is too hard to work for. Now, by the way, let me just tell you something. Paul's staff would have been a tough staff to work on, okay? Paul's staff would have been a tough staff to work on. And so he, he leaves. But the point is, this is not the end of the story. This is not the end of his story. And so this short-term missionary suddenly, look at chapter 13 and verse 13. Maybe not so suddenly. Maybe he'd been thinking about it for a while. John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas go on to have an incredible, successful journey, but there's a moment of rejection. About a year later, Paul says, time to take another trip, time to take another missionary trip. And since that time, John Mark's been home, you know, good to be home. James is the pastor, nothing like being at your home church. And, and James is the pastor, and God's doing some great things. The church is exploding and growing in Jerusalem Simon Peter is in and out. He's talking about Cornelius and the great works that God is doing among the Gentiles. And, and you see all this happening, and, and obviously he's not run away from the Lord. He's just come back home to a comfortable church and to a comfortable setting. So, so here's John Mark. I think the whole time he's home singing the songs, enjoying the worship, probably witnessing to people, telling people the good news, maybe even going to some Sunday school classes and talking about his missionary trip. I think the whole time the devil is beating him over the head. I think the whole time the devil is whispering into John Mark's ear, you're a loser. You couldn't even make it on one missionary trip. You had to go home and see your mama, didn't you? You couldn't even get away. You're just a mama's little boy. You couldn't even get away from your mama. I think the whole time... John Mark was being beaten up by Satan, who is called the accuser of the brethren. And if you're honest, there have been seasons or moments in your life, and maybe there's one right now, 
when the enemy's been beating you up about some failure in your life and he won't let it go. So, neither memory nor conscience will let him rest, but somehow, somewhere, in reflecting on that first journey and his failure, John Mark repents. He realizes he's failed. He realizes he's blown it, and he repents. And so when there's a second missionary journey, unspoken conversation, but John Mark and Barnabas are, you know, down at the Dairy Queen eating a dip cone, and, and so that, you know, he says, hey, you know, I know you're going on that journey. I know I didn't make it the last time, but I really want to go on this one. And so I, I think John Mark wanted to prove himself to Paul. I think he wanted to prove to Paul, I'm not a failure. I know that you've got to think I'm a failure, but I'm not a failure. You just got to give me another chance. And so before I move on here, let me, let me just say that sometimes we put people in a box over something that happened in their past and we never let them get out of it. Now, that's the way the world thinks. That's not the way the church ought to think. And sometimes a lack of grace will say to somebody, no, 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 you, you blew it right there. You blew it. No, you can get back in your box, get back. And, and we treat a person who has blown it like a dog that needs to be put in a cage. And that's not the way we ought to be. There are consequences to our failures. But we shouldn't be the kind of people that act like the world acts and say there's no grace, there's no forgiveness, there's no second chance. That would be the wrong way for us to respond. So, pick up in Acts chapter 15. John Mark hadn't earned any points with Paul, although he has with Barnabas. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And Barnabas wanted to take John, call Mark along with him also. But Paul kept insisting, that's not even strong enough to say what Paul was doing. Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to the work. And there occurred a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Barnabas says, hey, I'll go get John Mark. He's probably already got a bag packed. Paul said, not on your life. That young man's not going with me. He's blown it. He's messed up. There's no way I'm going to let him within a sight of this journey. All we're going to do is end up babysitting him. And there was a disagreement. There was a falling out. Now, was Paul right or was Barnabas right? The answer is yes. They were both right. Because Paul was right because John Mark wasn't ready, but Barnabas was right because he knew there was potential there that needed to be developed and worked on. You see, you need a Paul and a Barnabas in your life. You need somebody to shoot you straight, cock the gun, say, hey, I'm just going to tell you straight out what it is. And then you need, then you need a Barnabas to come alongside of you and say, now let me tell you how to interpret that. 
And let me tell you how you can work through it. And let me tell you what you can learn from that. And you need a Barnabas. His name means comforter, one called alongside. You need a Barnabas that can come alongside you when you've blown it to say, now look, here's how we're going to overcome this. And Barnabas took him. And they split ways. And during that break, Barnabas helped John Mark answer some questions about himself. Am I a man that God can use? Am I a person that can be trusted? Am I the kind of person that can overcome the whispers of people who have called me a failure all these years? Now, the last thing is the moment of truth. Because you don't hear about John Mark for 10 years. Now, we don't really know what all Barnabas and John Mark did. We know that they had a ministry. But John Mark drops off the pages of Scripture for about 10 years. The amazing thing about it is when he comes back up, Paul is the one that brings up his name. And Paul doesn't bring up his name by going around to churches and say, let me tell you about this guy that failed me. Let me tell you about this guy that messed up. He's not a sermon illustration. He's on Paul's staff. Now here's a guy who couldn't cut it and now he's on Paul's staff. Just, let's just look at the verses here. Colossians uh, chapter 4, verse 10. It's coming up on the screen. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, here's what... This is incredible. I don't know if you, I don't know if you read your Bible like this. I read my Bible like this. This is incredible. For 10 years, everybody has known that Paul thought John Mark was a failure, that he couldn't cut it. The story, I mean, you know how church gossip is. Everybody knows everything. And the story has rippled across the Christian community, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Oh, hmm, John Mark. That's a guy that couldn't take sleeping outside on a mission trip. Yep, know about that kid. Don't give him any big jobs. And look at what Paul says. About whom you received instructions, when he comes to you, welcome him. Paul says, hey, that boy's in good standing with me. Don't you hold his past against him. Don't you lay something on him. Don't you go around and smart mouth about him. Don't you whisper about him anymore. He's in good standing with me. Look at Philemon Verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, and my fellow workers. Paul wants the church to know that this guy's made it back. He's come full circle. Now I want you to turn, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 4, because the greatest compliment that Paul makes to John Mark you got to always remember this in the context. Paul said, there is no way that guy's going with us on the second missionary journey. The greatest compliment he pays is at the end of his life. And by the way, the things that you talk about at the end of the life are the things that are really important to you. Paul knows he's dying. Paul knows that he's about to be martyred. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 9. Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, remember he mentioned him in Philemon, he's gone now. Having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. 
only Luke is with me, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Now, guess what? It's the same word for the job that he had in the first missionary journey. Paul says, I'm about to die, but don't you show up here without John Mark. If you have to go out of your way, if it takes you weeks longer, I want you to make sure you pick up that boy and you bring him with you because he's useful to me in my last days to do the very things that he couldn't do on the first journey. Now, you want to tell me the importance of a Barnabas in somebody's life? That when the great Apostle Paul needed somebody to come with him and to stand with him and to be with him as he faced a martyr's death, he said, take that deserter who is now a disciple and bring him with you. You see, failure's not fatal or final. Now, I I want to give you some principles here for you to remember. Number one, Failure doesn't have to be final. It could be personal. It could be professional. It could be family. It could be business. It could be ministry. But failure doesn't have to be final. It's only final if you let it be final. Secondly, no one gets beyond usefulness. No one gets beyond usefulness. Now, I'm going to stop and comment on this one for just a minute because I think it is so important. And when the Lord showed me this, I mean, just like my, my eyes went open. I mean, I've lived a long time, and I love John Mark as a character, but I never saw this until this past week. No one gets beyond usefulness. John Mark is the one who wrote the gospel that we call the gospel according to Mark. It was dictated to him by Simon Peter. There are only four parables in the Gospel of Mark. Forty times in the Gospel of Mark, it says suddenly or immediately. Now, here's the title that scholars and commentators have given to the Gospel of Mark for the last 2,000 years. Are you ready? This is good. I hope it's as good for you as it is for me. It's called the Servant's Gospel. Because it pictures Jesus as the servant who serves and becomes the servant who rules. Isn't it just like God? Isn't it just like God to take somebody that everybody else has said, nah, he's gone, he's through. To give him a job as a servant an underroar, he blows it, he comes back and does it, and then he writes a gospel and he pictures Jesus as a servant because he understood that role. It is God's reminder that nobody ever gets beyond usefulness. You say, well, what I do is trivial, not in the eyes of God. Not in the eyes of God. Number three, God turns failures into success. Every time somebody tells you, would you open your Bible to the Gospel of Mark? It's a reminder that God took a failure and made him a success. So all across this world, for 2,000 years, people have been referring to the Gospel written by a guy that couldn't make it on one missionary trip, but God found him to be useful. 
Number four, God turns fear into courage. Whatever he was fearful of, God turned it to courage. Number five, God rescues those we would cast aside. God rescues those we were cast aside. I just want to stop here and give a story. I don't know really why I'm telling this one, but I need to tell it. We were in line in a restaurant in Pigeon Forge uh, two days ago. And there was a little boy, he may have been 10, 10 years of age. And I'm standing in line to, to make an order. And he's up there, and guess what he's doing? He's being a 10-year-old. Everybody understand what that means? I mean, he's just being a 10, he's being a 10-year-old, okay? A 10-year-old is going to be a 10-year-old. Don't expect a 10-year-old to be a 30-year-old. A 10-year-old is going to be a 10-year-old. And he's hyper, and he's bugging his sister and a couple of her friends. And his mom reaches up, slaps him across the face, comes back and backhands him, comes back and slaps him again, and comes back and backhands him again. And I wanted to take the mom out and slap her. First of all, it was a sign she's physically abusing that boy at home. The boy wasn't doing enough to get backhanded or slapped. He was doing enough to come stand in line and stand by me and don't move. But he wasn't doing enough to be slapped around. And I thought to myself, having this message in my mind, who in this town is going to rescue that little boy from feeling like he can't do anything right? Who's going to step in and say, son, I see something in you. Maybe even your own mom doesn't see in you. I see potential in you. You say God would rescue those we cast aside. And if we don't get in the business of rescue, there are going to be a lot of castaways that we could have had in the kingdom. Number six, the life surrendered to God can be redeemed. The life surrendered to God can be redeemed. And number seven, and this is the best one, God always gets the last word. God always gets the last word. Your family, your friends, your enemies, your work associates, your neighbors, they don't have the last word about your life. God's got the last word. And so if you walked in here and you've blown it, and all of us have basically admitted that we have, just remember, God's got some principles that he wants you to operate by so that you won't blow it when you race toward the finish line. Let's stand together. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. And during this invitation, our staff are going to be here at the front. And I want to speak to you for a moment. If you're one of those people that says, God can't save me. You don't know my life. You don't know my history. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been through. God can't save me. Listen. All of us are sinners in need of a Savior. None of us could save ourselves. None of us could redeem ourselves. None of us could do enough good works to be right with God. God saves the least and the lost. God can't save you. 
Some of you are here today and you're saying, God can't use me because I'm divorced or because I'm single or because I'm in a broken home or because I don't have the advantages or because I'm not smart enough or I don't feel good enough. And, and, and the devil's just telling you, God can't use you. I'm here to tell you God can use you. Amen. Jesus said the greatest people on the planet are people who are servants. And anybody can serve. Serving Jesus by what we do with our lives, with our hearts, with our minds, with our hands and with our feet. And some of you are standing there saying, God can't forgive me because you got other people that are whispering and they won't forgive you. But can I tell you something? God forgives. He takes our sin and he casts it into a sea of forgetfulness and he remembers it no more. Now you got people in your life that bring it up every time they see you. But God forgets it. And he's not the one reminding you of it. It's the enemy that's reminding you of it. And so I want to invite you this morning to be saved or to become useful or to find forgiveness. Come to Jesus this morning. This invitation is open. This altar is open. As we begin to sing, you step out and come and let Jesus restore the latter days and make them the best days of your life. All right? You come right now.